When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. That's why we do what we do here on Herd Tell. We turn down the noise of the news cycle, try to talk about things that matter, try to ignore the things that don't or get to the bottom of them and try to find if there's anything in there worth talking about. And we discern our times by having good information, talking to knowledgeable guests. So glad you're with us. Appreciate it. Uh, there's an old saying that when it comes to the workplace, you should never talk about religion or politics, especially not together. Of course, that's kind of a fairy tale. You can't separate those two. Why? Well, religion is a study of what people believe, how they see themselves, how they see life itself. Politics is how people govern themselves, how they see their worldview and how they see their interactions with other people. People are important because they are the most precious things on earth. It's the only things we can't replace. Once you're dead, you're gone. Can't bring that back. In our perceptions of how we treat other people and how we treat ourselves and how we view people is important. So no, religion and politics is not inseparable, no matter how much you may want it to be, how much you probably don't want to talk about it in certain work situations. I get that. I've enforced that rule a time or two when I was in charge of things. But we talk religion and politics on this show and they go together because people are complicated and those things feed into how they see the world, how they see politics and how they see each other. Let's go to an opinion piece in the Washington Post. This is by Paul Waldman. Now, I don't agree with absolutely everything here, but he drives to something that I want to discuss. So I'm going to read his piece as a basis, and we're going to talk about a few things real quick. Again, these are Paul Waldman's words um, from the Washington Post. Constitution may forbid any religious test for public office, but where politics is actually practiced, candidates are constantly testifying about their faith, hoping we'll all see them as principles and morals, no matter our own beliefs. Yet, despite what many voters believe, there's very reason, little reason to think there's something worthwhile about piety and politicians. A recent kerfluffle over comments by Jenna Ellis, an erstwhile Trump lawyer, current senior advisor to Pennsylvania Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano, who himself adheres to odious Christian nationalist worldviews, made this question newly relevant. Ellis responded to a recent Post article on Democratic nominee Josh Shapiro's Jewish faith by tweeting that, quote, Josh Shapiro is a best a secular Jew in the same way Joe Biden is a secular Catholic. 
end quote. It was an utterly vulgar for a Gentile like Ellis to pass judgment on whether any Jew is sufficiently Jewish. It's also a particularly weird way to attack Shapiro, who is devoutly observant. Again, this is Paul Waldman writing in the Washington Post. Unfortunately, this wasn't too surprising given the recent eruptions of anti-Semitic remarks from high-profile conservatives, including Donald Trump, who has a long history of tossing around anti-Semitic tropes while expressing surprise that more Jews don't abandon their values to support him. Most notable, though, is the implication that being more secular in Ellis's eyes would make Shapiro more objectionable as governor. Is there any evidence at all that pious and observant politicians make better governors or senators? Are they wiser, more compassionate, more competent, possessed of more integrity of those who don't regularly attend services or look to scripture for policy guidance? There is, I haven't been able to find it, in our long history of rogues and villains in public office, the highly religious are more than adequately represented. As in the rest of society, there's no pattern in which the corrupt are more likely to be secular and the moral more likely to be religious either personally or in their official capacity. Again, this is Paul Waldman's writing. I'm going to talk at the end of it, but let's go through this first. And there are plenty of less religious office holders carrying the quantities that the faithful is supposed to bring. Take somebody like Bernie Sanders, who, unlike Shapiro, happens to actually be a secular Jew. Despite never claiming his religion should dictate policy, Sanders embodies what advocates of pious politicians say they want. You disagree with him, but he's clear and consistent with his principles and his positions and decisions. They're unwavering, and among other things, his supporters believe they immunize him from corruption. We can argue that some other time. Campaign contributions won't necessarily change his positions. And as so often happens when people claim they're looking for principles, what they're really after is nothing more than politicians who support their team. Nothing demonstrates this more vividly than evangelicals' rapturous embrace of Trump, whose professions of faith are comically phony that not even his supporters can believe them. When Ted Cruz ran against Trump for the GOP 2016 presidential nomination, he said any president who doesn't begin every day on his knees isn't fit to be commander in chief. That's a Ted Cruz quote. But the GOP's religious base turned away from Cruz and all the other more religious candidates give their support to Trump. Seemingly the living representation of character flaws Christians are supposed to abhor. But why? Because what really mattered to them was Trump hates who they hate and they don't care what his Bible versus his favorite book. That's in quotes but can't name a single Bible verse. Remember 2 Corinthians? That was fun. That happened to Liberty. He hated and infuriates liberals, and he fights the culture war, and that's what mattered to a lot of them. And to a degree, this is Paul Waldman writing now, not me. He said, and to agree, they're right not to care, and the rest of us shouldn't either. Among the benefits of not worrying about how often a candidate sits in the pews, we may finally get some representation for the tens of millions of Americans who aren't religious. An important recent development in the faith of Americans is the rise of the quote-unquote nuns, the rapid increase in those who tell post pollsters they don't believe in God or don't identify with a particular religion. They make up a quarter of Americans, and the numbers are even higher among young people. And yes, there's even such a thing as a conservative atheist and conservative liberals out there. Yet there are almost no nuns serving in Congress. Christina Cinnamon in Arizona may be the only one. A candidate's faith may sometimes be a shortcut to know which positions they'll take, but it won't tell us whether they'll be honest and trustworthy. There are plenty of things that go into being a good public service, but being religious isn't one of them. That's Paul Waldman writing in the Washington Post. Don't agree with all that, but he's driving at something, and I want to use that as a basing off point. There's a lot of ways you can talk about religion and politics, and almost all of them are fraught because somebody's feelings are going to get hurt somewhere in there. Even inside of faith groups and denominations or however they're divided up, you can't get people to agree on anything. Trust me, I'm a Baptist. We argue everything from casserole to colors of the carpet to what kind of music. We can't agree on anything about anything. And that's just inside of our own little corner of the religious world. 
that goes for a lot of other people too, Catholics, Muslims. I'm sure our Jewish friends argue about certain things during synagogue meetings. I don't know if they have business meetings or not, but in our churches, we certainly argue over everything. We can't agree on very much, even inside the confines and constructs of our faith. So when you start talking about politics and religion in a big pluralistic society like the United States of America with 330 million people getting more diverse by the minute, and polling shows us getting less religious by the minute, you're going to upset a lot of people no matter how you address this. So let's kind of keep it on a practical level and just deal with it this way. Here's one of my rule of thumbs when it comes to a candidate and their religiosity, for lack of a better term to put it, what they say. As in all things, judge actions, not words, because anybody can learn the buzzwords, they can speak the languages, they can say the right things, they can even quote whole verses of scripture. It doesn't really tell you anything about their personal life. So I already can hear it now. There'll be folks from our Christian friends will be like, it's not very Christian to judge. Okay. It is Christian to fruit inspect. That's in the Bible. Might want to check that one out. But I do judge actions and I do inspect fruit. If you claim to be of a certain kind of fruit tree, I want to see what you produce. So go with actions, not words. Here's you a good telltale with a lot of people. People that got to be really loud and be really upfront and tell you how great they are with their faith and how religious they are and how much they pursue their faith and how Christ-like they are or how much they attend to whatever other faith group they may be like, that's usually a red flag to me. Now, you can call me cynical, but here's the thing about it. Your religious belief should have a lifestyle component to it. That's why I don't lead off with it. I'm a very bad example of my faith group. I try my best with it, but I'm really, really not good at it. I fail a lot, so I don't lead off with that. If you want to talk religion, we can. I've studied theology better part of 20 years, both academically and just because I enjoy it. But I don't lead off with that because I'm very aware of my own sins and my own failings. We can talk about it if you want to in a conversation. See, that's how you handle that. If you're going to lead off on your Facebook pages and your Twitter feeds or your candidate websites or your fundraising emails, yes, do that too. Then I have a right to judge you based on that. And if it doesn't match up with the faith group you're aspiring to, I can judge that too. But what Paul Waldman got at here, and the part I do agree with him on is, we've got too many people that don't want to do that. They just hear the words and never actually judge the actions to see if they match those words. Now, some of that's because we're all hypocrites to some degree. We all have failings. That's why we have faith in the first place, because we're all trying to work through this life thing. We're all trying to understand life. We're all trying to figure out how to be better people. And whether that's for your God or for your own good, depending on your faith group, it's a noble thing to work on. But if you're just using it to put people into groups and categories, if you're just using it to identify people of your tribe, you've stopped doing that. You're not really trying to improve yourself anymore. Now you've just got a tribe. Now you've just got a group. You might as well be the Elks Lodge with a cross on the front of it. Are you really being all that religious if that's the case? Culture and politics and religion and politics and morals and politics and morals and religion are some of the most complicated concepts we have. Philosophers have debated them for years. Theologians have fought over them. We fought wars between different religious groups over these sorts of things. So when it comes to religion and politics, we ought to be at least able to talk about it honestly and say, let's judge actions, not words. Your buzzwords don't impress me. 
We have internet and Google now. Anybody can find those. What does your actions tell me? And fair enough, just sitting in a pew doesn't make you religious or going to synagogue or going to Friday prayers or whatever other religious group you are. Fair enough. Everybody can do that. Going to Walmart doesn't make you a Walton. I get that. What does your life say? What does the things you put your time and energy in? We always open this program with thanking you for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. Let me see where you spend your time. Is that with your faith group doing charity work or doing things in the community or praying or whatever it is? Or do you spend that time attacking other people? Politics is rough. Religion is hard to understand. But we can judge people's actions. And if they don't match their words, we should believe them. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, this is going to be fun because I love when you can tie history and policy together into a current event and a current problem. We're going to do that right now. Uh, Neetu Arnold is joining us, another of our great Young Voices contributors. How are you, ma'am? Thank you so much for the time today. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited about talking about this subject. I am too. She's a senior research associate at the National Association of Scholars. That needs an acronym. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, and she's the author of Priced Out, What College Costs in America. But we're going to talk a little policy here. Uh, you're in the Wall Street Journal. Great get. Congratulations. Still haven't heard back from them yet. <laughs> I'm available. Uh, the title alone gets my attention on this. A Cold War program gets hijacked. We're going to talk about the National Resource Centers. Let's start big picture before we zoom in on the National Resource Centers, though. This is not a new phenomenon where we have Cold War programs, Cold War policies, frankly, Cold War thinking that has zombified and still lurches forward today, along with some government funding and the bureaucracy that comes with it, is it? No, not at all. And I think this is a perfect example of a program that was conceived under an emergency that has outlived its purpose. And again, with the National Resource Centers, they were founded uh, as a Cold War emergency. Uh, this was in the height uh, of the Cold War. Uh, Sputnik was launched by Russia or the Soviet Union, actually. And uh, at the time, Americans did not have a sufficient language, knowledge, or science or mathematics at the time. And so there was a lot of interest from the government to educate Americans in foreign languages, in math, in science. And so that's how this program came to be. And so it was really about develop, uh, specifically for the National Resource Centers, it was about developing language knowledge and expertise on different areas of the world. So, so far, what I've said here doesn't sound very problematic. It doesn't sound controversial, but over the years, uh, there's been a mission drift for these centers. And what I documented in the Wall Street Journal piece was that a lot of these centers are now focusing on issues that are either unrelated to national security or uh, the topics are not that important. And in fact, sometimes malicious. Yeah. And that too, Arnold joining us. Uh, you know, it hits me staying big picture for just a second before we get into the specifics of the NRC. 
everything you just said, you could swap out the Soviet Union and say China, because we've been discussing over and over again. It's like, well, China is so far ahead of us on the intellectual and academic front. They're punting out and you can pick whichever number you believe. So many more, you know, scientists and so many more of the higher ed people than we are. So on the surface, this is not a problem that has gone away. But that's not what these things are actually doing. And it sounds good. Hey, we need to have more knowledge of the rest of the world. Absolutely. We need to have a strong academic core to pull things like government researchers, things like government diplomats. The the concept is good. Where did the concept lose track of what's going on in the real world, especially as the world changed from the Cold War to the war on terror era to now where we have real world things like the Chinese where they're an adversary? Right. So I really think the mission started to change after the Cold War ended. And this was a problem that many of the scholars working at these centers uh, realized that once the Cold War ended, the mission of the centers also ended. And there was concern that many of these centers would close. And so in the 90s, the early 2000s, uh, there was discussions of rebranding the centers to focus more on, quote, international education. Again, they thought that maybe people could learn more about the world. And there's not an issue with necessarily learning about different cultures or different uh, different customs. But its connection to national security is a, a little bit fuzzy. And this was the way to continue the importance of the program. And then, of course, after 9-11, there was increased interest, especially in Middle East National Resource Centers. And uh, so, again, more government funding was pushed to those uh, to those centers specifically. But again, there are so many people before me who have documented the bias of these centers and uh, after after the 2000s, funding got cut to many of these national resource centers. But again, we've never really gotten rid of the funding. And my argument is that, well, it's time it's time to cut federal funding for these centers. Yeah, me too, Arnold. Before we get into the problems, if it was a perfect thing that ran perfectly, which we know there's no such thing, especially when a government <laughs> bureaucracy gets involved, what should they look like if they were functioning properly? Because, it, it, you know, it's kind of like counterfeit money. You know, the banks don't teach people with counterfeit money. They show them the real money so they know what the counterfeit looks like. What should the real thing that works properly look like so that we know what these problems look like when we delve into them here in a minute? I mean, I think they should just teach languages and they should focus on uh, issues like uh, security relevant issues to these areas with devoid from ideological activism. And that's what I really document, that that's what they're doing now, that many of these centers are promoting ideological activism, primarily uh, progressive or left-wing ideology, so there isn't even a balance. Um, so that that's what I would say. It, it needs to it, it needs to not be focused on ideological activism. Yeah, but this is the reason it's going to have the ideology in it. Let's be honest here. This is going to be a, a role, the jobs that staff these things. This is going to be very academically heavy. The academic institutions are already leaning to the left for the most part. This is going to be bureaucracy heavy. We know the people in the bureaucracy lean to the left quite a bit. It seems like an inherently built-in problem because, look, we, we talk about the system and the bureaucracy. Well, the bureaucracy is people. And when you're drawing from that pool of people, just demographically, I'm not even knocking it, just math-wise, that's probably what you're going to get for the most part, right? Well, I don't think so, actually. I think uh, the centers back back during the Cold War, during that time, I think there was a lot more objectivity 
involved in many of the people in the center, even if they had one particular view, they were able to teach these subjects without inculcating their own ideology. So I think it is possible, but we've clearly devolved from that. So in the context of today, I would say it's becoming a lot harder. Why is that? So if if it changed, was there a single now, obviously the Cold War ended, so that was a major change. But, you know, that was well, we're pushing 40 years on that now. What changed then that this has become more ideologically, you know, to the left? Why did that change? Did the people change? Was it the circumstances changing? Was it a change in the funding system? What did it? Right. So I think some of it has to do with the people themselves and uh, the normalization of including activism and left-wing ideologies in the coursework. And I think um, part of the reason is because of the new left movement, which was pretty, which uh, pretty much rose uh, throughout the 60s and 70s. And it, many of those people were in college at the time, but now they're adults and they're in these teaching positions. So I would say that's one place for why this activism became involved with, or melded with education. Um, I think there's also just more of a focus on um, oppressor versus oppressed, um, you know, those ideologies that have uh, inculcated. And I think some of it also has to do with uh, the funding. So at least for Middle East studies, what I can say is that they started to get more funding from, this is for certain centers, so this is not for all national resource centers, but for a center at Georgetown, for example, they were looking to uh, foreign funders like those in Saudi Arabia, Oman, many of the other Gulf states, and uh, they have specific interests. So I would say some of that would affect uh, at least what the ten centers would teach, though I would say nowadays the countries don't necessarily need to tell the centers how to teach these subjects or what views to promote because the faculty will do it on their own. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Me too, Arnold, joining us. Let's look at it this way, too. We're talking about ideologies here. Going back to what the core point of this was supposed to be, I think there's a danger. Look, I have no problem that we hash out different ideologies in an academic setting. I have no problem that we hash out ideologies in a political and cultural setting. We need to. That's how our system's right. growing up. That's how growth. We should be debating this stuff out. I do think there's a problem, though, because what happens here is, let's be honest, we're Americans. We get a little myopic in tunnel vision. We tend to see everything through our American filter. And some of these things, some of these ideologies, some of these culture type issues, 
they don't apply when you start talking overseas and they don't apply when you talk to other countries because other countries' struggles aren't the same as ours. Their cultural struggles aren't the same as ours. This seems to be when you start trying to just apply the cultural issues of the moment, which is what happens when the ideology shifts, to these, which is supposed to be something to boister how we see the rest of the world. That seems like two incongruent things to me at this point in time, the way it's being used now. Absolutely. And I think there's a big misunderstanding of what other people from different parts of the world view different issues and how I don't even want to say how we view it, because I don't think it's everybody in America. I think there are many people in this country who would disagree with the way the academic establishment has gone about these issues. And I thought a good example of what I saw here, this disconnect, uh, was when Stanford University's Latin American Center, which again is supported through federal funds, it receives federal funds, um, decided to host a webinar on how we could use picture books to promote LGBT advocacy for Latinx, Latinx, Latinx. And I read that and I thought that was a bit out of touch because even most Hispanics do not agree with the terminology of Latinx. And again, I'm not really sure what that topic has to do with American national security. So I, I would say that's an example where the academic establishment is out of touch with not only everyday Americans, but a lot of people from other countries. Yeah, need to Arnold joining us. There's two things that you point out in your piece um, that have changed dramatically that you use to bolster your argument here. I'm going to take them in turn. One you, you talk explicitly about. The other one's kind of hinted at, but I want to flesh it out a little bit. The first big change from 1958 is a pretty obvious one because it's how we're talking right now. We have this thing called the Internet now. Yes. Um, 1950s, you know, everything's still in books. Encyclopedias is the big thing. Very different environment, very different cultural environment, very different communication environment. The world is way more integrated. Uh, people's knowledge of the world is way more integrated. That's something that hasn't been updated in the way the NRC sees their primary mission, is it? I agree with that. And that's why I say that we're not limited to just the physical classroom or these national resource centers anymore. Uh, I think the Internet, uh, love it or hate it, uh, it's it's been a way to connect people and people who want to learn about different cultures could go, easily go on YouTube and watch some YouTubers. And I, I, I get that the criticism might be, well, there could be disinformation. How do you know what's true and what's not? And I think we have to have a little bit more faith in people that they can evaluate what's true and what isn't. You go on YouTube, if something is false, people in the comments will easily let you know. And I, I think it, it can be a good platform to see other cultures as they are, like in their actual environment, free from the political correctness of the universities. Uh, it, it can allow people to make their own choices, make their make their own, uh, or come to their own opinions about the way the world works. Yeah, Nate Arnold joining us. The other one, and you kind of hinted and talked about a little bit, but I want to really bring it out here is, we, the American people, have changed. We just had the new census data come out. Not only is um, what would previously be considered minority groups growing, the nation is diversifying very, very rapidly. And part of that diversification is, and you mentioned it in your piece, we have more at least bilingual, if not multi-language speakers than we've ever had before. 
you mentioned a couple of other places, uh, the Education Department's Language Resource Center. The Pentagon's uh, Defense Language Institute is considered an elite institution for decades. It's, they're very good at what they do. It seems to me that there should be some recruiting of them. This could also fall into a, you know, where we talk about the visa situation where we get some of these folks into our country that are that can do these sorts of things. There seems to be multiple ways to address this, especially with a diversifying country, like of a better term. We can do some of this in-house now, can't we? Yes. And again, I want to bring up some numbers here just to provide more context. So we do have more bilingual speakers in this country than ever before. In 2018, 67 million people had, were speaking a second language at home. Uh, some of these languages were Hindi, Chinese, Arabic, which are all languages deemed critical by the Department of State. Uh, so I want to bring this up again. 2018, 67 million bilingual speakers. Uh, this is compared to 2000, where we had 47 million bilingual speakers. So 20 million increase. Uh, I think we could draw upon these individuals. You know, I think of people like my parents who are uh, native or they, they have native fluency in Hindi. And if you paid them enough to work in these positions, especially during dire times, uh, there would be many people in my community and other uh, bilingual speaking communities who I think would easily take that job. So it's just about paying them enough and uh, the, the incentive structures should be there, but we're not in this dire situation of the 1950s where we don't have the internet, we don't have that many bilingual speakers acro across the spectrum of the various languages that exist. Uh, we have a lot of options nowadays. So. It, I, I think the National Resource Centers, they really rely on the narrative that if we got rid of these centers, if we got rid of the funding for them, that we would be thrown into this knowledge crisis, which I, I don't think that would be the case. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. So as usual, when you're dealing with a government program or a government institution that this is, you're dealing with funding and you're dealing with power structures because people don't want to give up their little hamlet of power, right? I don't want to put anybody out of a job. That's not what I'm saying. It seems like there's some redundancies in these centers. Like we said, there's some other things we could step up. There's other things that overlap and can take the burden on them. You know, it's easy to just say, let's eliminate something because, you know, <laughs> you don't have to do all the red tape and you don't have to write all the law, right? But if you're going to eliminate it, this does seem like a program that can be absorbed into other parts of government, either by expanding other parts of government, expanding where it already overlaps. 
this doesn't seem like this would be a giant gaping hole if we got rid of it. This seems like something that just needs to evolve to the natural next level to me. It, I think it's realistic to assume that we could cut funding or even eliminate the funding for national resource centers. And that's because we've already done it before. In 2010 or, 2010 or 2011, uh, there were major cuts to uh, Title VI funds, which is some of the funds for the national resource centers. Uh, I believe it was a 40% cut, which is major for federal programs. And my view is that if we could do it once, we could definitely do it again. And uh, as you say, there are redundancies here. So again, either we cut the funding or some, some of those funds could just go to other departments, but there is no reason to have these redundant institutions, especially when they are not teaching things that are relevant to national security. Yeah, me too, Arnold, joining us. Uh, let's go back to big picture where we started after going through, you know, policy stuff and and bureaucracies. You got to wait through a little mess to get through and people's out. Let's go back big picture for a second, because I think it's a fair criticism that the worldwide literacy of the average American is probably not where it should be. As far as, you know, our place in the world, how the rest of the globe does things, how other cultures do things. I think that's a fair criticism. I am an American. I love my country, but I've also lived overseas. So I've got to see it from that side looking back in. I think that's a fair problem. What would be a good way to address this, not just bureaucracy wise, because that's always going to get took over and you get mission creep like you talk culturally, the way we deal with our social media, the way we deal with intaking information. We already talked about it. We have the Internet. We can look up anything at any time instead of just, you know, doing cat pictures and yelling at D.C. What's some things that the average person can do? on their own to raise their worldwide literacy, for lack of a better way to put it, which is actually the core value of what this was doing in the 50s was, hey, we as a country need to pay better attention to our place in the world. What can we do individually to just go ahead and do that on our own now? I mean, I would say, you know, maybe this is just my view on this from the people I've spoken with. I actually think they know quite a bit about the world. And there's a lot less understanding of the way things work here in America, whether that be the way our government works. Uh, you know, for example, I work on student loans, uh, the, the issue of student loans, and there are many people who don't realize that uh, federally backed student loans, that's that's paid by the taxpayers, uh, that, that connection isn't clear. And there's a lot of lack of understanding even about our own history in this country. Um, whereas I see a lot of people and they seem to know something about another place or the food of another culture, because we have a lot of that here in America. So I, I do think some of this just starts from, uh, you know, in K through 12 education, having uh, uh, better reading education. Part of learning about other regions in the world requires knowing how to read and be because you can read a lot of these things in books on the internet, uh, watching YouTube videos. I think YouTube is a great tool for this where people talk about their experiences traveling to other parts of the world and even people from other parts of the world will comment about their experiences. So I, I do think it's about having a stronger K through 12 education system and uh, just more reading. Yeah. And I think this is, uh, this is one of those things where we bash the internet and we talk about all the kids are always online and stuff. I look, my two youngest are teenagers right now. I'm telling you, they're way smarter than I was and they know more and they, and yes, there's a lot of silly on TikTok, but there's also stuff on there that piques their interest and they go look it up and dig into it further cultural stuff. So I think this is partially a cultural change that 
Um, and our government is always slow to adapt to cultural change. But yeah, the generation coming up next, you know, my kids' generation, they got no problem. If you tell them something, they go look it up and fact check you on the spot. So I think some of yeah. that might be coming. Um, just to put a cap on this, you wrote about the National Resource Center. We're going to put the piece up in the links. Wall Street Journal. Read the whole thing for yourself. She also has quite a few links in there that you need to click through. A lot of data on there. Read it. Make up your own mind like we already said. Which would be the fix with this? Would this be a administrative fix with the bureaucracy? Would there be, need to be a piece of legislation? Um, if we were going to pare down and or eliminate this and or fold it into other programs and somehow do it that way, what's the remedy here? Is it administrative? Is it legislative? What do you think? I think it's more legislative. Uh, I, that's what's been done previously. So I would think that's where the change would need to be. Uh, obviously, in the shorter term, if uh, we can't just eliminate federal funding for national resource centers, then the Department of Education should strip funding from centers, so individual centers that are not meeting the national security needs. They are either distracted, they are presenting, they're, they're misusing funds for topics that are not even related to national security. That is something the Department of Education could do. Me too, Arnold. Uh... I love these topics because there's so many of these programs like this that they kind of outrun their their original program and they just keep going and going. It's the old uh, Reagan line about the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. Here we got one of them. Could be useful, needs to be looked at and dealt with. We appreciate it when you bring things like this to our attention. Uh, we'll definitely have you back. Enjoyed talking to you. Until we get you back on Hertel again, though, let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you're doing, what you're writing, and how they can follow you. Yes. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, to follow my work, you can either visit the National Association of Scholars website, which is www.nis.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at N-E-E-T-U underscore Arnold. Yep. And we'll link to all that. Make sure you follow her on the Twitter and keep up with all her writing and works. Need to Arnold. I really enjoyed this. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much for the time today, ma'am. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, been a minute since he got on here, but he jumped all on me on Twitter over pie. So I was like, well, that's good time as any bringing back uh, RJ Lehman, good friend of ours, the International Center for Law and Economics. He does all kinds of other things, but we're going to argue over pie, my friend. I'll yep. take Apple. You can have the field. The floor is yours, sir. Well, I, in fact, I am wearing a lime shirt. I know people listening on audio can't see this. This is a very Florida thing you're yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so to celebrate the key lime pie, which is you know, I, I have one that I do like better, but I, I go key lime pie. If you key lime is your favorite pie, I can't argue with that. It's it's definitely uh, uh, top five in, in any list. Um, it's a you know, it's got it's got the perfect balance. You got a good graham cracker crust. I'm not a short crust guy. Graham cracker crust contrast with the brightness of the key lime uh, and the condensed milk. And then, you know, a little. A little you can go either way you can go meringue or whipped cream on top um and it just comes together 
in in the perfect combination. I, mean, I think pie, pie is a good platform. You can use pie and good crust to make so many different kinds of things. Uh, cake, you know, it's cake is there's a, a frosting delivery mechanism, and that that's that's its best purpose. Otherwise, cake is is kind of bland, kind of dry. Pie can be everything. Yeah, delivery mechanism is the good term for it. Here's my I'm not a huge sweet guy anyway. My daughter's yeah. a baker. She can bake anything. I'm not a big sweets guy. I'm really not. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever said as American as key lime pie. <laughs> that's true. That's true, but that's because they, they don't understand that Florida is the most American state. Oh, here we go with it. I, I sat through that debate last night, but let's talk about that some other time. Let's stick to pie here. Look. Apple pie is just per let, let me let me let me throw you some background here. We actually had apple trees where I grew up 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 yonder. We had several of them. Uh, my great grandfather put those in, grafted them like in fact, the one in front of the house is still there. It actually has three different kinds of apples on it because he grifted them, but because it's got three different apples, none of the three are particularly good to be honest, but the deer <laughs> like them. But those transparents right in front of the house, and we've lost a few of the trees to storms and stuff over the years. Those transparents, man, you don't want to eat them off the tree because they got a little tart to them. But sure. by the time you make apple pie out of them bad boys, and yeah. Mamaw made some apple butter out of them bad boys, mm -hmm. you're talking if now the eating sweet apples, you got to get a little bit of a tart apple. So when you sweeten it up, it's got that balance. It's true. And then whether you do regular pie or you do Dutch where you do the crumble, I can I can handle either. You want to get real funny and do the strip things with the crisscross. Look, we're poor folks. Yeah. Just put some crust on there and poke right. it on. Let's go. Yep. Get a little ice cream on there. Yeah. It's just perfect. It's tart. <laughs> it's sweet. You get a little ice cream on there. I'm not a biggest sweet guy, but there's a reason we say as American as apple pie because it's just perfect. It's a good balance of elements as well. I'm not going to denigrate apple pie. Uh, I, you, you serve me a good apple pie on Thanksgiving, I'll be a very happy man. Um, I just think there's a lot of other pies. But then again, you know, I... I go towards very sweet. You know, my my very favorite pie is the Amish uh, Pennsylvania Dutch shoe fly pie, which is basically just a slab, two slabs of sugar, a slab of molasses, slab of brown sugar on top. Yeah, um, the molasses for people that don't know, yeah. molasses is very distinctive. Of course, something, you know, Appalachian. So this is something yeah. very, you know, indigenous to my culture. Mm -hmm. Um molasses is this whole different thing and when you per correctly use molasses in a thing you can tell it's sweet without being over but this is some we we both traveled europe like yeah. you go into a pastry shop in like germany or france or somewhere even something that's glazed with sugar yeah it's not that heavy artificially sweet like we get here in america it's sure. not that just punch you in the face sweet yeah and molasses does that better than sugar does, does so we had an Amish community when I was working in Ohio. Uh, we actually delivered to them and they would always send back the Amish donuts. I'm talking yeah. just a dough ball the size of your fist covered in that. It yeah. looks really super sweet, but it's not. Yeah. And that stuff is so, so good. Good call. And, it, and to do it right, to do it authentic, in fact, they don't use so molasses is a kind of what the Brits call treacle. Um, you know, we don't use that word very much here, but technically molasses is dark treacle. They're in Pennsylvania, and you can't get it everywhere. They're golden syrup, which is light treacle. They call it turkey syrup. Turkey syrup is, is the most common brand name. Um, that is what you're supposed to put in a in a two fly pie. Um, you can get it on the internet if you're if you're gonna try to make it at home. If not, regular dark molasses works well too. I don't I don't I don't I don't have any truck with using dark molasses, but. If you want, I want to, you know, give the authentic experience. You're supposed to use 
you're supposed to use turkey syrup. Now, I have to do a shout out here because she does listen to the program. I know this because there's a phone call situation to make sure it's working usually to get her on the Facebook feed to watch the program. Yeah. But aunt, no, no, I love you. Uh, <laughs> my aunt Nora always makes the kid a big chocolate pie. Now, when mm -hmm. I say chocolate pie, I need to paint the picture here. This is a pie that is sticking up with all the chocolate filling. Mm -hmm. And then it has a good three or four inches of burnt off meringue on top nice. of it. Nice. So this whole thing is like a pyramid of awesomeness. Again, yeah. I'm not a super sweets fan. She usually makes them for my kids when we're in for things, but I have reconsidered my position. I will also consider no, the chocolate, chocolate pie from Aunt right. Nono of Mount Nebo, West Virginia. But what, so what about your standard fruit pies, your cherry pie, blueberry pie, peach pie? You're not, you're not a fan. I'll tell you this. I got blackberries are awesome. Unless mm. you grew up rurally and actually have had ever gone blackberry picking. Mm-hmm which is, I think, Dante's eighth or ninth circle of hell. Um, <laughs> it, when you're a little kid growing up in West Virginia and you got to go blackberry picking, understand these things are not normally on the side of the road. Right. They're out in some pasture on some hillside surrounded by thorns, some kind of wild creature that wants to kill you, usually yeah. a couple patches of poison ivy. Mm -hmm. uh, Odysseus did not have to go through half as much as us kids growing up had to to get blackberries. That kind of burned me on black. I'm... Yep. Look, uh, number one, full disclosure here, I've got major GI issues, so I'm not supposed to have citrus anyway, so i got to be right. careful with berries anyway, so a little bit of bias here. I've never been a big berry guy. I don't, I know, I talked tart and sweet. I understand the flavor profile. Y'all know how much I love to cook and food. I mm -hmm. get it. Dessert-wise, I've just never been that much of a berry person, especially the really sharp mm -hmm. stuff. Obviously, lemons and stuff, you use the flavor. I've yeah. just never been a berry guy. I just yeah. never have been. It's just personal preference thing. But I get it. I understand, you know, berries and cream. You're already halfway to a pie right there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people go to brunches. You know, a mimosa is basically a liquid berry pie. Let's just be fair with alcohol in it. They, I get it. It mm -hmm. just ain't me. If you want a balance, you know, good balance of sweet and tart, um, I think a, a really excellent pie is a strawberry rhubarb. Uh, strawberry pie on its own, like a strawberry cream pie. Even for me, that's a little too sweet, a little too cloying. Um, rhubarb on its own. Some people really love it. Um, it's tart. It's it's a little bit astringent, a little bit bitter. But you combine the two in a strawberry rhubarb, and that is a you got all the all the flavors, all the balance, right right in one spot. Yeah, I I get the berry because look, the the key to food is balance, especially mm -hmm. when you're putting like a something like a pie. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons I don't like cake. You actually opened up with this. I'm I'm not a big icing guy. So if all I'm getting is icing when I eat your cake, then you've already lost me. <laughs> because yeah. and I get it, people like icing, but you know, I it it should be the it should be the end note crescendo, not the first note that pun you know, it's not a James Brown thing. Hit it on the one. If I'm getting icing first and that's it, you you've right. already lost me. Yeah. Pie, cake, confections, you know, bigger you got to balance those things out. And this is why it comes back to apple pie for me as being my favorite, because that thing just balances so well. Mm -hmm. You do it right. You do the crust. The crust is so important, by the way. You, you got to get that late, that flared lakey. It's like making biscuits. Got to get them layers in there. Got to get that cold butter in there. Mm -hmm. There's an art to it. I don't know how to do it. I'm, I'm a pretty good cook. I can't bake to save my freaking life. So right. people that can make good pies, my daughter can make, she made me a four layer cake for my birthday. Just off, I'm going to make you a four layer cake today for my birthday. Oh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. You know, she can do it. I can't, you know, right. making science. I'm more of an artist. I want to free form it. Yeah. I have infinite respect for people that can make a good pie. I'm being a little facetious saying apple's the only one. Cause I like to throw grenades on Twitter every now and then. But mm -hmm. 
I really do believe I look, I'll take apple pie folks. And you brought up one on your list that you put on Twitter. We'll link to his yeah. tweet, by the way. Sure. I do find rhubarb very intriguing because it really is more savory than sweet when it's handled yeah. correctly. Yeah. But people think of it as a dessert, like a rhubarb pie, but it, it really is a savory. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bitter root. Uh, it, it's got, and it's got, when, when it's cooked, it's got, you know, some, some tang to it, some, some tartness. Um, it's, it can be a good balancing agent, a good pecan pie where you add your vanilla and your salt um, along with it, you know, the saltiness of the nuts. And then the, obviously the, the butter and the corn syrup um, that is also, I think a, a pretty well-balanced pie, but definitely a sweet pie. I'm not, I don't have a problem with just getting punched in the face with, with sugar Chest pie is another one similar to to uh, shoe fly pie that's basically just a slab of sugar. Yeah, there's all kinds of, you know, icebox pies where you just cold it yeah. and let it sit in the fridge. Uh, but pies are good. All right, this is fun. It's always good to talk a little food, buddy. We'll get you back when we'll actually talk some, you know, internet regulation or something sure. important that we need to. But uh, RJ Lehman, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you. You're a great Twitter follower because you're like me. You're all over the place. You're talking pies and food and politics. Let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep up with you and what's going on at the uh, International Law and Economics Center, my friend. Sure. We're, uh, I'm at, at Ray Lehman, R-A-Y-L-E-H-M-A-N-N. Uh, on Twitter and uh, my employers at law econ center. You can also get us at law org on the internet. Uh, we're, we're real busy these days with stuff like uh, credit card regulation and uh, platform regulation and antitrust, which is always a exciting topic in the world of big tech. Yeah. I was reading through uh, Kevin McCarty's list of things he wants to do. I got a feeling you and me going to be talking a lot in January <laughs> and February, awesome. my friend. Yeah, uh, always good talking to you. Good to see you weathered the hurricane, my friend. We'll have you back soon. RJ Lehman. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yep. Yes, sir. for Herd Tell. As always, love to hear from you. HerdTellShow at gmail.com. Send us an email, HerdTellShow on the Twitter. You can DM us and follow us there. Also, my Twitter handle, 4 for the Fire, and those of our guests is always in the lower third graphics. If you're watching on the YouTube, if you're listening on the podcast, there'll be links for you to follow both the writing of the folks we have on and us and our social media. This only works because you listen and we so greatly appreciate you. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. We can't wait to see you again for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.